think if folks within our industry have team women team members to give them challenges and to you know make sure that the opportunities to solve hard problems are given to their entire team not just to the folks who speak up or, or raise their hand because through tackling those hard problems it'll give the women a chance to learn something new, gain more skill sets, build that reputation that can help them with their career and keep them engaged. Welcome to the Women in Utilities podcast. I'm your host, Madhavi Shankarling, and today I'm joined by Ellie Lynch from EN Engineering, where she's the Senior Director of Data Solutions. Ellie shares with me her passion for helping organizations optimize data solutions and build robust data governance practices so they can take advantage of data-driven models and analytics. We talk about how Ellie uses her background in civil engineering in her work and her interest in understanding the connections between culture and infrastructure and sustainable resource development. Ellie also has some great tips around the importance of communication and managing your reputation. Stay tuned to the end for the first time a guest has turned the tables and asked me a question. Okay, let's get to it. Welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Could you please tell me a little bit about the organization that you work for? I work for Ian Engineering, which is an energy engineering consulting firm in the United States. We're about 2,000 people, a little over 2,000 people um, nationwide. And we do everything from design engineering for natural gas and electric distribution and transmission um, to the regulatory consulting um, data analysis for utilities and, and energy companies. Fantastic. And what's your role in that organization? I'm the director of our data solutions group. So we've got a team of about 100 people who support using data to optimize operations. Everything from, you know, reading the ads belts, interpreting them, making sure that the data that's within the data systems is clean and organized, um, to analysts and engineers who are helping build or implement risk models, um, and the, the database administrators and solution architects who um, maintain those data systems and, and make them talk to each other and make sure that they're usable. So Ellie, where do you see utilities heading in the future? What are the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead? So I think it's a really exciting time to be a part of the utility industry. Um, like many industries, it's going through a technical transformation uh, and the ways of working and managing the assets of the utility space is, are evolving. Um, Right now, and specifically with data, utilities are moving towards more data-driven operations, which may mean everything from implementing a, a data-driven probabilistic risk model that can be used to prioritize um, either a, a replacement program or maintenance programs. Um, it's, we're also increasing the real-time knowledge of systems, which can allow for predictive analytics. But on the flip side, for those technologies to be effective or possible, it requires large piles of reliable information that feed the analyses. And so one of the big challenges is making sure that that data is accurate and available. Um, and then the other challenge is making sure that it's set up in such a way that allows the users to access it and draw from those endpoints. Additionally, another change or thing we're seeing within the energy industry is um, a shift in 
the type of energy that's being used. So a transition to more renewables, a transition to um, distributed energy resources such as solar um, or um, wind, where it's no longer con- the generation of electricity is no longer concentrated at the generation stations and then transmitted by the utility to the end user. But instead, those are being connected to the grid, which is um, driving adoption of additional types of technology, such as smart meters or um, uh, smart grid technology. But it's also changing the role the utility plays and the, the relationship of the utility to the consumer. And so both of those are opportunities to re-envision where the utility is going, um, but challenges because you know what worked 25 years ago won't necessarily work today. Excellent. And you mentioned there that having good quality data is going to be really key. And obviously without good data practices, you're going to end up with poor decisions and, and errors. Have you assisted utilities in that transition to being more focused on data and data analytics at all? Absolutely. That's that's been my my role um, probably for the last eight years has been in, in that transition. And many of the projects that we work on or, or that I've worked on have been either in finding information and saying, okay, what data has, has this organization been using? You know, one person may have a a, a database that they created and they've been using for the last 25 years of collecting information. And that overlaps with another database. And so it's it's not just a question of finding the data, but saying what is accurate, where are there overlaps, where are there discrepancies, and then saying, okay, how can we build this into one single source of truth that everybody who needs it can access the data they need? And building the technical systems for it, you can make a database, but the other layer is what are the workflows, practices, and and policies around maintaining it? So once you have that data in one place, systematically ensuring that it won't be corrupted or the value of it disintegrated because you don't have the right practices in place. Mm. So there's that people component to it as well, right? Huge data governance. You know the the combination of technology and people. Mm, yeah. And you also talked uh, briefly there around um, smart grids and smart infrastructure and real-time information. Do you also see artificial intelligence playing a role in the future as well? I do. And I, I, it's already playing a role today in some places. So a quick use or an easy use case that's um, you can describe is the use of artificial intelligence on smart grid systems or ones where you have Um, smart meters, and a lot of sensors throughout the entire network. You can use artificial intelligence and other decision decision analytics tools to predict where there might be an outage coming up. And maybe that's using weather data, or maybe it's just looking at the um, patterns within the system at that point in time and say, okay, there's going to be an outage. We can roll the trucks and have them go out and start to address it before it's happened. Or, you know, you can send a text message to the people who are going to have the outage and say, hey, you're going to have an outage, um, be prepared. And so that's that's one way to implement artificial intelligence. But the next step would be using that same sort of algorithm where you can say, okay, there's going to be an outage, is to go from predictive analytics to prescriptive. So you're no longer just identifying there's going to be an issue, but you identify the conditions under which there would be an issue using AI and then prescribing how to uh, prevent that issue from occurring. So it's it's essentially using predictive analytics to create a preventative measure. And I, I assume that we're going to see more and more of that moving as we move into the future. Absolutely. And organizations are, are 
actively setting this up. So many utilities are setting up centers of excellence in analytics, um, building their data eco. I mean, the first piece of this is, is building the data ecosystem that will feed algorithms that you trust. And so organizations have been looking at um, creating data lakes and data governance so that their data lakes don't turn into data swamps um, so that they can then can turn that data into something meaningful and build algorithms off of it. Mm. You really get the sense that that organizations are really competing on analytics these days, that those that have been able to make it a central part of their business and use it for business decision-making, et cetera, are performing or have the potential to perform far better than their competitors. Absolutely. And, and it's in a couple of different areas of the business as well. So you have data analytics around the core assets of the energy organization, whether it's the pipelines or um, the electric lines, uh, that sort of thing. But you also can apply that same data analytics to the customer facing side of it. So as the relationship between the utility and their customers changes with the integration of distributed energy resources, that data analytics on the consumer side will be equally as important. Ellie, what has been your path to get to where you are today? So I started um, with EN engineering as a design engineer in the natural gas system. Prior to that, I'd had some experience with GIS and um, had really focused on systems and, and like the the infrastructure systems that support our society as a, a personal interest of mine and spent a year um, studying that prior to, to coming to EN. And so um, when I joined EN, I joined as an engineer on the team that worked with GIS data and was a part of a core group of five people who were kind of carved out of the design team and said, hey, you're going to start building up the GIS capabilities. And we had a database administrator, a programmer, um, uh, system architect and, and myself from the project side, and we worked together to identify opportunities, start to take on projects, um, build out relationships with people within our company and, and figuring out their use cases in order to serve them. And through that, identifying ways we could serve our clients and, and help them with their evolution of leveraging GIS and some of these tools. Um, I and during that time, I went back and got a master's in um, data science with a, a focus on machine learning and artificial intelligence um, and have taken some of those concepts and, and applications and applied them to the evolution of our, our team. Um, those five people we've turned into a group that's now around 100 people who work on um, data management, um, consulting on, on data systems and then the IT infrastructure side, and, and I've gone from being the, the coordinator to a manager, and, and now I'm the director of that organization. That's amazing. So you, my understanding is that you you graduated as a civil engineer. That's correct. Yep. Yep. And and now you've moved more, very much so, into the the GIS and the data analytics, um, and as you said, machine learning and artificial intelligence space. Does your engineering background? help you in, in your current role? Absolutely. I think it's, so engineering um, is the art of problem solving and it's a toolbox of ways of taking apart a, a problem and saying, how do I, how do I solve that? Um, also civil engineering is really looking at, again, kind of the systems that we work with. So there's transportation, um, road networks, and why well, I didn't take any courses in um, electrical systems or anything like that. It's, it's, 
does have the perspective of looking at a, at the world systemically. And I think that same trend kind of applies to, to what we do with the data side. Um, so our data systems move a lot faster and are easier to, to change a connection from, from one database to another than it is to build a bridge from one island to another. Um, it's the same concepts. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you spent some time overseas, specifically in Africa and also, I believe, in Canada, earlier on in the piece, looking at um, sustainable resource development and even the relationship between culture and infrastructure. Would you like to share a little bit more about those experiences? Absolutely. So um, this actually ties into your previous question. Engineering is really a a toolbox for solving problems. Um, When I was in my civil engineering program, I was really constantly seeking to understand the why behind the problems that we were solving. And and, um, a lot of engineering is math and, and, you know, here's the equation or what, what is the context of, you know, building a bridge from A to Z. But what I found myself fascinated with uh, was why were we building that bridge from, from A to Z? Uh, I can make it structurally sound with the the structural um, equations that I'm using, but why do we even need that in the first place? And so I took a couple of different side paths through my um, undergraduate education. The first was to Kenya, studying sustainable resource development, um, to really just look at how another society works with resources and um, that that kind of aligned with the, the civil engineering side of it, which, you know, civil engineering is the, the building of our structures and infrastructure. And then this, the resource development is kind of parallel to it. And um, the other program that I took, which was a, another sidestep through through my undergraduate career, was to a college called Quest um, in British Columbia. And their platform is really around, it's not a traditional degree. And so I spent a year there where you um, kind of pick a topic. And, and if you're there for four years, you pick a question and you spend four years building your curriculum around it. And while I was there, I spent a year really just using the courses I was taking to try to explore how culture influences infrastructure and how infrastructure influences culture, which I think really goes back to, you know, using data to understand the energy industry. And, you know, if you dive into energy, that's the infrastructure that allows our culture to function. And they're so intertwined. Like I think electric vehicles is a great example of this type of relationship you know, you, you've got society starting to adopt more and more electric vehicles. And that's a change in how energy is consumed. You know, prior to EVs, you'd have your house, you'd have your business, you'd have your building, and you knew where it was going to be. And you could approximately estimate the load that was going to occur given certain um, uh, temperature or weather conditions. And as people are adopting EVs, they have the load that is you know, equivalent to a house for a day. And, and so you're using a lot of electricity that can then be charged throughout the system. And so that load is now moving from one location to another and guessing where you need to have effective capacity for charging that EV so that people can do so. Um, evaluating how many are going to be adopted is going to completely change how you plan or forecast where you need to build the pipelines of energy so you can actually um, charge the EVs where needed. I found that whole part where you were uh, overseas, um, the topics that you were looking at to be really fascinating. It seems like it's it's really about understanding holistically 
and giving context to those engineering projects. Yes. Hey there, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this episode, there's a few quick things you can do to show your support. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Leave me a comment letting me know your thoughts and share this podcast with friends and family. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the interview. Was there an experience, Ellie, or or a moment that inspired you to pursue a career focusing on utilities? Was was there something that prompted you to go down that specific path or work with that industry specifically? Um, It wasn't uh, utilities specifically. I think I was always um, leaning towards something that I I was always leaning towards going into infrastructure in some capacity and had done, um, you know, studies in transportation when I was in my undergraduate uh, program. But the opportunity to work in utilities was somewhat just chance more so than design. But once I was in, I've, I've just really enjoyed learning and being a part of it. Fantastic. And so what specifically do you enjoy about working with utilities? Why do you continue to stay in that industry? Um, it's. I think it goes back to the fact that it's at such a transition point. There's so much evolution and change occurring that, you know, every year that I'm working, I'm doing something new and there's more opportunity for learning uh, and also for being a part of something that is impactful and meaningful to the functioning of our society. And that that gives me a lot of motivation. Mm, Absolutely. What challenges, Ellie, have you faced in getting to where you are today in a male-dominated environment? So I think that most of them come from um, unconscious bias. I think that for for the most part, I have not faced any deliberate um, bias or anybody who was, you know, holding me back just because I, I am a woman. But I think that there's a unconscious bias that we do need to be cognizant or, or aware of. And, you know, early on in, in my career, I can think back to, you know, meetings where I was being talked over or um, folks were skeptical of an idea when I presented it, but not when others in the in the room did. And I, I think facing that unconscious bias is something or, or dealing with it is something that was a challenge. In those situations, what what did you do when you felt that you might have been, uh, as you said, that there might have been unconscious bias at play? Did you did you speak up or did you go to um, someone for advice or help? From from the the get go, and, and um, my parents would would vouch for this. I've I've always been a fairly outspoken individual, um, and so when I felt talked over, you know, I'd continue to speak up, and I think for those specific situations, my focus was on clearly articulating an effective idea, not to, you know, speak over the person who may have spoken over me, but really to build a reputation that outweighs the unconscious bias that others may have when you you come into a situation. And so um, my focus was on articulating and, and sharing very clear ideas um, so that those could build a reputation that would work for me. Mm, yeah, fantastic. Do you have any thoughts or ideas on what the industry could be doing to attract and retain more women? So on the retention side, I think if folks within our industry have team women team members, um, to give them challenges and to you know make sure that the opportunities to solve hard problems are given to their entire team, not just to the folks who speak up or 
or raise their hand um, and just make sure that they have those opportunities to tackle hard problems because through tackling those hard problems, it'll give the women a chance to learn something new, gain more skill sets, build that reputation that, you know, they can have help them with their career um, and keep them engaged. And so I think being deliberate in, in sharing the, the exciting challenges or the things that, that people, you know, get to sharpen, sharpen their teeth on um, is a really important piece of it. And not just going back to the same person every time who, who's solved it before, but helping others have that same experience. Yeah, that's, I love that. Giving giving women the chance to solve the hard problems. I really like that. And what what other advice would you have for women who might be looking to make a career in utilities? I think finding a voice and consistently and clearly speaking up um, on ideas. And I, I think that articulating clear ideas and honing communication skills um, will be one of the most effective tools of, of making sure you have a sound idea conveying it and standing by it. And have you had mentors, role models, or champions in your career that have helped you to get to where you are today? I have had incredible um, mentors and and role models. I've had the fortune of working for multiple inspirational leaders who um, have been an advocate for me in doing new things or, you know, trusting that, you know, whatever idea it was could work or it was worth giving a shot to um, both as individuals, but also the organization that I work. And I've, I have not, I have felt that my organization is very supportive of giving the, the best idea a chance, regardless of who it comes from. And I think that attitude and mentality is, is part of where um, I've benefited. Do you have a favorite book or, or what are you reading right now? My favorite book it was gifted to me a year ago, and it's The Art of Doing Science and Engineering by Richard Hammack. He used to teach a course on um, the future of science and engineering through discussing his experiences as an engineer and a technologist. And the book is really a compilation of his seminars. And so I, I haven't read it cover to cover, but I keep it and refer to it or will you know, take a break and read it depending on the different topics or, or some of the problems we're working on. It's a really um, inspirational book. Ellie, I also found out in some of my research that you are a certified vintage race car driver. I am. I would love to hear more about that if you're, if you're keen to share that. Absolutely. So I race a 1961 Austin Healy Bug-Eyed Sprite. Um, if you look it up, it's a cute old British car that has headlights that look like eyeballs and it's the happiest car you'll see on the track. Um, I race with a club in the Chicagoland area where, um, you know, there's about five to six events a year and we're racing on road tracks. So they're circuits, but they, you know, you turn left and right and you race wheel to wheel with other drivers. So um, you're on the the racetrack with anywhere from 30 to, to 80 other cars and um, you are all trying to, you know, elbow each other out and and be the first to cross the finish line. Most races are about 20 to 20 minutes to an hour, depending on the the race format. And um, my husband and I both race, he races a vintage Saab and I race the the vintage um, Sprite and we, we do all the work on our cars ourselves. 
That is incredible. What a great hobby and, and certainly not for the faint-hearted. What's the top speed that you can reach in that car? Um, so my car is is still somewhat stock. We're developing the motor and hopefully with the new motor, I'll go faster. I have reached exactly 99 miles an hour. Um, other cars that I'm racing against, like the, the fastest in my group, who I will beat someday, I just got to get there. Um, <laughs> they have about... 45 to 50 more horsepower and they can go 130 to 135. Wow. Incredible. I, I, and I have seen a picture of your car and it is the cutest car I've seen on a racetrack. You know, what's worse than losing what being beat by the cutest car on the track. (laughs) Absolutely. And, um, who or what inspires you at the top of that list are the people I work with every day. I think What's been inspiring um, with the team and, and the folks I work with is, you know, there's so many diverse skill sets that come together to work on these projects and to work on these problems. And um, it's really inspirational to meet people who have done something that can solve you know, maybe some part of the project or they, they can think through something so methodically that it kind of falls together. And so it's really um, been the coordination and, and working together of the team is, is incredibly inspiring. Um, and then I think alternately my grandma, who is an incredible person, she's hilarious, spirited, um, but given a challenging situation, she can always make the most out of it. And I think that attitude has been inspiring since I was a little kid. Oh, I love that. If people would like to reach out to you to find out more, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, email would be fantastic. Ellie at stagecraftplayers.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ellie. It's been great to have you on this episode. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here. That's a wrap on another episode of the Women in Utilities podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, comment, and share this podcast. I'll be back in another month with the next episode. But until then, keep powering on.